And so Paul makes it clear here that the kind of life that Jesus has designed us to live, the kind of life that Jesus has freed us to live, it doesn't just take good discipline. It doesn't just take wanting it, um, but that it's only by God's grace that we can be changed to live that way. That God's grace is what changes us. That it's God's grace that teaches us what to say no to, teaches us what to say yes to. And it empowers us to have the strength to actually follow through with that. That only God's grace is what changes us. And now as we hear the word grace, I know it's um, pretty common in our regular speech. And usually the word grace is used with like, you know, a dancer who was very graceful. Or the deer gracefully bounded through the forest in order to eat the flowers in my garden. Um, But when Paul says grace... Um, What he's talking about is something different. When we hear him say grace, we can hear him say grace appeared. We can hear him say Jesus Christ appeared, essentially. That we're going to, if we were to sum up Jesus's life in one word, especially him going to the cross, dying for us, we could sum it up with the word grace, right? But the way Jesus lived his life was a life of grace. And if you want the textbook definition of grace, this is typically how it's described. Grace is is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Uh, the thing is, and that's true, that's what grace is, but if you've ever read much of the Bible or the story of Jesus, then that feels a little stiff to me, at least. Because the way grace is described in the Bible through stories and through the different places that we see it, it is unmerited favor, but I just want to hopefully expand it. Because what we see in the Bible is grace in the case like the prodigal son, right? He ran away squandered his father's wealth, had no respect for his father. But then when he came back, the father ran out to meet him with open arms, received him with love, received him even though he didn't deserve it. Or you could think of the thief on the cross who was crucified next to Jesus. As far as we know, that guy did nothing good in his entire life. Um, He was executed rightly for his crimes. He said it from the cross. He's like, yeah, I deserve this. But then he says, Jesus, I believe in you. And Jesus responds, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Or then you could think of Paul, who wrote the book of Titus. He was essentially a bounty hunter against Christians, going out, finding them, getting them locked up, getting them killed. And then Jesus stops him in his tracks, forgives him, and Jesus' grace changes him, empowers him in a miraculous way to then go out to be a missionary, to be a mouthpiece for God, writing much of the New Testament. And we see these descriptions of God's grace being this generous, undeserved love to people that pursues us when we're unlovable, that loves us anyway, and that then changes us and sends us out to serve him. That God's grace seeks us out when we have nothing to offer, but actually is what gives us, changes us, and empowers us to be godly. And so at its simplest, grace is this unmerited favor, um, but grace especially, it's this love It's this generosity, it's this forgiveness, it's this favor that is given to those who don't deserve it. Those who don't deserve it. And I think we can get kind of a better understanding then of grace, especially in the book of Titus, when we look at then who grace is given to or who grace is offered to, right? In verse 11 that we just read, who is grace for? Who is grace offered to? You guys can talk in here, don't be too shy. But who is grace offered to? All people, all people, every person. So we just went through a big list at the beginning of the chapter, young, old, men, women, uh, Americans, Cretans, maybe even Canadians, right? Um, Red and yellow, black and white, God's grace here appears and is offered to all people. 
And so just in the context of Crete, right, grace brings salvation to the kind of people that were all described here, perpetual liars, inhumane beasts, useless gluttons, um, because what is essentially being talked about is that grace appears to the unrighteous, right? It's for those who don't deserve it. And then Jesus here offers forgiveness, offers a totally clean slate, that these people who have no qualifications to be able to receive this have just been given it by God's grace, by his generosity, that they've been given forgiveness and a relationship with God. It's what Paul's describing here. And it's almost like the people that God should say no to the most, the most undeserved people, it's like because of God's grace, God says yes. And so I think if we really understand it and if we really understand what Paul is talking about here, especially in verse 11, is that no one is too far gone for grace. No one is too far away from the kind of change that we've described for grace to not make up the difference, for grace to not change, for grace not to be offered there. That no one is too far gone for it. Um, But at the same time, uh, no one is without need for it, right? There isn't anyone who doesn't need God's grace. No one stands above needing his grace. And that is why Jesus offers it to all people. Even the people who maybe seem like they're doing okay. Still offered to them through faith. So grace is offered. This is what grace is. Grace has appeared that offers salvation to all people. But then the question is, well, then how does grace actually change us? And especially for these Cretans, how is grace going to change a people that seem to be so wicked? How does grace help us to say no to the things we should say no to and yes to the things we should say yes to? Um, And you can just stick with Paul's train of thought in verse 12 there, where what does grace do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, right? Teaches us. Some versions of the Bible say instructed, some say tutored, that grace tutors us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Um, has anyone ever had a tutor before? Anyone? Jake, you're the only one who's had a tutor? No. Only one. Back here. Only one. <laughs> Everyone else didn't struggle. We're fine. <laughs> okay. Now they're admitting it. Okay. Did you like your tutors? Do you have good experiences? No. They're kind of tough. Most people who've had tutors didn't necessarily love their experience. Uh, When I think of tutors, uh, frankly, this is the person that I think of. Uh, I think of the Duolingo owl. Um, This is something that we use a lot, especially the team that goes down to Mexico. Um, It's pretty competitive. We get on Duolingo. We try to get high scores. Um, And Duolingo is great as an app for teaching language because this little owl serves as your tutor, and he, he keeps on you. He makes sure that you're doing your lessons. He makes sure that you're doing your things. You will get so many notifications from this guy if you don't uh, practice your lessons. And some have said that the Duolingo owl actually goes too far. Um, there have been, they kind of had to pull it back because some of their, uh, some of their notifications got a little too aggressive and a little too passive aggressive sometimes. But, so the joke is always like, hey, this is the Duolingo owl if you forget to do your lessons. Um, and there are a lot of good fun, uh, memes shared out there of things that the Duolingo owl says to people and just like some timing that doesn't work out very great. You know, the Duolingo owl gives you a notification. Looks like you forgot your Spanish lessons again. You know what happens now? And then their security system goes off. <laughs> it's like, This owl is going to make sure you're learning here. Um, And so what this little anthropomorphized, terrifying owl has taught me um, is that, one, 
even the most aggressive, consistent tutor cannot necessarily make you want to change or want to learn. Like, this terrifying owl cannot actually infuse in me the Spanish language. He can motivate me. He can threaten me. He can do whatever he can to push me towards the app to try to practice my Spanish. And so the problem is that's often what we think of when it comes to the way that God works in our life as well, right? And if you've had experience with tutors that maybe you didn't necessarily love, then this is probably what you think of. Um, And so oftentimes when it comes to like our personal growth, with our spiritual formation, with our becoming like Christ, with our change, uh, we often think of God working like the tutors that we've had before. And the problem is then that we have tried the different resources that are out there to change. Um, We've tried different religious leaders, different teachers. We've tried all the different self-help that's available. There are piles of books on changing. Uh, Maybe some of us have even tried counseling, or maybe you've been like a Christian for a long time. Um, You have even had like a spiritual tutor, someone discipling you. Maybe that person's even been me. And you've gone through this process and that you still feel like I didn't change as much as I thought or I'm not changing as much as I thought. I'm not learning as much as I thought I would. Maybe you've had that experience. And the problem is that after that experience, well, one thing is that that approach to change, I think is putting all the weight and all the pressure squarely on our own shoulders or squarely on another person's shoulders. And the reality is that if it doesn't work, if we're not changing as much as we want, then this can leave us feeling tired, inadequate, can make us feel like a failure. If it does work, it can leave us feeling prideful, better than others, talking down to others. But the reality that Paul is pointing to here is that this kind of change only comes from one tutor, one teacher, and that's God. It's the the spirit who gives us this grace. And Paul wants us to see that grace is altogether different, that the kind of change that Jesus offers is different than any other learning, any other change that we would go through in our lives. He wants us to see that it's all on God, all on his grace. And the apostle Paul writes elsewhere in the letter to the Philippians, where he says that it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So what Paul is saying is that the pressure is off here, right? That it's God at work in you. And it's God at work that it will actually give us the desire to want to change and the ability then to carry out God's will. That it's God's work in us. It's his spirit powering us, giving us that desire, and actually giving us the strength to follow through with it. Helping us to do what we cannot do ourselves. Even... I think this is key, even if the desire is missing altogether. Even if the desire is missing altogether, not actually interested in change. Actually, one of the works of God is that he gives us that desire to want to change. Gives us that desire. Because this is what God's grace does. Teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly possessions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' grace takes us on as a tutor or his apprentice, teaches us what to say yes to, what to say no to, what to say yes to, what to say no to. And so if you return to the the caterpillar and the butterfly in the therapist's room um, for a minute, the truth there is that the caterpillar needs to go through a whole lot more than just wanting to change in order to change. Um, The caterpillar actually has to go through essentially a process of death to become a butterfly. 
right? We've talked about this before because I think it's one of the most fascinating things that happens out there. Uh, But once in the cocoon, the caterpillar actually is completely digested. There's a mythological creature, which is half caterpillar, half butterfly. It doesn't exist because there's actually a point in which inside the cocoon, it's completely liquid. Caterpillar is completely liquid, essentially completely dead. And then some kind of genetic coding takes place where it's rebirthed actually as a butterfly. And so it's not just like a transformation. It's not just like squeezing really hard and the wings pop out like in a bug's life. Um, And the butterfly's advice is not actually going to cut it. That the sort of transformation that Paul envisions here actually requires a death. Requires death here. That we actually need to die and be reborn. And that's why oftentimes when we look at the change that is described, that's given to us in the scripture, it feels like this is just too dramatic. I would actually have to like die and be reborn. And that's actually exactly it. But if we want to walk in the ways of Jesus, obviously we need to be reborn by him. And we have to recognize that a death actually did take place as well. And this is what Paul is getting at here. That the only kind of regeneration, the only kind of change that we're looking for here, is requiring of a death. And that's why Paul said here that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. Jesus gave of himself that he actually did die in order for this change to take place in us. Jesus actually is the one who died for that to take place. And so grace appeared to redeem us out of wickedness, to redeem us, to set us free in this way. And so now, because of his death, that we can actually live in this way, that we can actually experience this amount of change. That there is power in what Jesus has given to us. And when we wonder, well, exactly what do we do with this? We can continue on and see just a really important word that I think we need to recognize in verse 14 there, where it says that Jesus is working to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Or the ESV says, a people that are his very own possession. And there's actually this extra word in there that the NIV left out after his very own. His very own possession. It's literally a special possession. Um, the word that's used is the most treasured item in the treasury. To have this valuable treasure. That essentially Jesus has died to purify us in order to make us a treasure that God has made you a treasure by his grace, by his grace. And this isn't something that he did hypothetically. This is something he did within history. He came, lived, died on the cross to make us a treasure here. And he demonstrated that grace by dying on the cross. We see that picture of what he did, giving himself for our change, anytime we look at the cross. Anytime we look at the cross. And so God's grace, the challenges in Scripture to change, are all just reminders to us of how loved, how cherished, how treasured we actually are from God. Right? That this, this call to change is not just because we're expected to be good or because we necessarily are good, but it's because we have a God who's so generous, who's so gracious, who's so loving, so full of grace that he would actually offer this to Cretans, um, to people like us. 
And that it's all just dependent on the grace of God. Here. Dependent on the grace of God. And that's why Paul made sure to emphasize that Jesus is doing this himself, right? He's purifying for himself. Because again, the pressure's off. It's only grace that's doing this. Jesus himself will purify his own, will purify his possession. Right? Jesus himself will cultivate this in us. He'll create this desire in us, and he'll actually give us the strength to do it. And so as I was recognizing this, okay, this is just very clear about how our change only takes place because of Jesus. And he's the one who's actually purifying us himself. Um, I was just really praying through and working through, well, how do I then equip us to know this grace, to experience this grace, to receive this grace? And I was really trying to figure out what would be a good application for us then. Like, okay, here's what you can do to receive God's grace. And I really felt like I was missing the mark big time in light of all that is said here. Um, Because then I was directed to Colossians chapter 1 that we already prayed through. Where it said in Colossians chapter 1, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Um, Because Paul was writing to a church in, I say Colossians, but that's okay, Nick, um, that was going through a very similar situation where they were struggling with living, changed lives, And they were trying to add to the gospel in order to make that happen. And what does Paul do for them? What is Paul doing here? He prays. Okay, here's a big change that needs to take place. That change is only done by grace. So he prays for them. And he prays for knowledge, complete knowledge of God's will. And he prays for wisdom and understanding. And I think this is really key of just how Paul is praying for them. Um, especially because when I first hear, like, okay, well, he prays that they would have knowledge of God's will, right? For me, I feel like that would solve it all, that we would just immediately be fixed. Hey, we'd be able to change if we just knew God's will. Um, But then I realized that oftentimes we do know God's will. Uh, Take the Ten Commandments, for instance. Ten Commandments are pretty clear, right? Pretty decisive. We know what we should and we shouldn't do. But... Most weeks or even most just days when I wake up in the morning, um, it's not necessarily a question of whether I know God's will because I don't necessarily wake up and wonder, you know, like, thinking about killing my neighbor today. Um, Is that God's will? Or like, I'm going to have an opportunity to embezzle money. Do you think God would be okay with that? Or like, yeah, this thing came up. I'll probably just like lie to my wife about it. Um, I wonder if God is okay with that, if that's part of God's will. Like those aren't usually the questions we ask because most of the time we know God's will. Uh, most of the time the questions that we are looking for, that we're trying to decide is like, okay, should I go to this college, that college? Should I apply for this job, that job? Um, should I ignore that conversation or should I go and talk about this hard thing? Um, what foods should I feed to my six-month-old baby? Like all these different things. And God's will is not always necessarily that black and white or that clear to us. And that's why Paul Praise for this wisdom and understanding. That we need wisdom and understanding from God to know how to follow his will here. And so in order for this to happen, Paul says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that you would have full wisdom and understanding of this. And I wonder, well, okay, I was trying to come up with all these different application points and really a good metaphor to get you to understand it so that you could just continue to experience God's grace 
receive God's wisdom and understanding. And I realize what Paul is doing here. Paul is just taking a step back, and he's praying for this. And I've heard it said that people respond much quicker to truth that is prayed than to truth that is preached. Um, Because we need preaching. We need teaching. I'm kind of dependent on us needing preaching and teaching. Um, But I cannot, in my preaching, um, dispense God's grace to you. Um, I cannot do the work of God's grace in your life. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's like, I can teach you stuff, but I can't produce in you the kind of change that needs to take place. That is only something God can do. And so Paul says, I am praying for you. And I just think here at Common Ground, one of the things that I want all of you to hear and to know is that you are being prayed for. Just as we prayed for one another this morning, also happens every month, every week, that you have leaders who are praying for you, who are praying these things over you. I just want all of you to know that you are being prayed for, that you would be changed by God's grace, that you would know God's will, that your identity, your status as redeemed by God would be fully realized by you. And so as we conclude, and we, I think as we just try to figure out what are the three things that we can do to really live into this, I think the first thing we have to recognize when it comes to the fact that we can only be changed by God's grace is we just have to remember this and remind one another of who we are. Um, because when it comes to God's grace doing the changing, oftentimes we can forget that, we can put it all on ourselves, and a lot of us then will walk around with a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, because of what happened yesterday, last week, last year, whatever it might be, is we're not seeing that kind of change. And I think what we have to do as a church, and one of the important reasons that we gather as a church, is to remind one another who we are. Hey, you are a cherished possession by God, that Jesus has redeemed you, that Jesus has saved you, and just reminding one another of that status. As we struggle to follow Christ, it doesn't change our status there. And just reminding one another of who we are. Because there's a lot of messaging out there about who we are. And we have to meet together in order to remind one another of this. And it's crucial. The other thing is we just have to be aware of God's grace. Um, that This is something Jesus does. He's purifying for himself a people. Um, and if he's doing that, I think it would go a long way if we just had an eye for that. If we just had an eye for that for ourselves, to be encouraged and to have faith that he is working in me, he is changing me, where we can notice the ways in which we have desires now to follow him that we did not have on our own, when we can see our friends and the people sitting next to us, and we can see the changes that God has made in their lives, that they have become such a generous, patient, loving person. And being able to just see that, be aware of that, and encourage one another in that. To be able to say, I see God's work in your life to be able to just encourage one another in that because we are aware of the work of God. That this kind of thing doesn't just happen on our own, that it's not just the caterpillar trying its hardest, that when we see these changes, this is the work of God. And I think it's important that we are aware of that and we call that out. We encourage one another in that. That we would see that and we would look for that in one another to encourage it and to bless one another. And then finally, I think the biggest thing we need to do is just pray. Pray for this, simply asking God for his grace. God, would you change me? Would you purify me? Or asking God for wisdom and understanding. I'm trying to follow you, trying to obey your will. God, give me wisdom and understanding 
to actually obey your will. I think we need this, the work that only he can do in order to live these kind of lives that Paul described. Because I think only Jesus can produce this stuff in us. Only Jesus can produce this stuff in us. And as we go through this letter of Titus, we have a whole other chapter left. We're going to see this same theme come over and over again. And Paul is actually going to essentially teach this same thing about grace again in the next chapter, just from a different angle, because he's essentially saying, this is so key, this is so important. I want you to see it just from another angle so that you don't miss it. So we have to see that Jesus will tutor us, change us, instruct us by his grace. So we have to really recognize this. So then I think the question then changes as we consider, well, okay, we have scriptures laid out before us. This is the kind of change. This is the kind of life presented to us. I think we can reframe the question of not how much change am I capable of? How much change is he capable of doing in myself? Because again, the pressure's off. This is something all done by him. Our role is just believing in him, recognizing it's his grace that does the work, abiding in the vine, looking to Jesus, having faith in him. And so as we go about, and as we see God leading us to live in a certain way, we have to recognize only Jesus can produce this stuff. So would we just remember that? Would we remind one another of that? Would we have eyes that see that work in one another to encourage that, to continue to strengthen one another? Because it can get discouraging. I think we have to be a people who encourage one another in that. And would we be a people who eagerly seek this out from him? We want to be disciplined. We want to be self-controlled. We want to be able to do all those things. But pay attention to the ways that we subtly reject God's work and we put it on ourselves. And would we be a people who just submit to him and ask, would you do in me what only you can do? So this is how Paul ends Titus chapter 2. This is how grace has appeared all of these different categories and these different ways of life that have been described can only happen through God's grace. And so with that, I think it would be most appropriate for us to just pray to that end here now as we conclude. So would you please bow your heads as we pray? So Father God, uh, we just thank you for changing us. We just thank you that when we were wicked, when we were far from you, when we were enemies of yours, that you showed your love for us by dying on a cross, that you gave us favor and grace when we didn't deserve it. So now, God, we just respond in worship to you. Uh, We just respond with thanksgiving to you. As we look to the cross, would you just help us um, to just stay focused on who you are and what you've done, that we would remember that this is a work that you've done in and through us, that we would not be discouraged, that we would not be tossed to and fro by the waves, by the, by the circumstances of life that seem to tell us otherwise that your grace is not working, God, would we be a people encouraged to know what you have done, what you are doing, that we would be a people who trust in the one who started the work in us, that you will finish it. And so, God, I just pray uh, for Common Ground Church this morning, that we would be a people who know your grace, who are changed by your grace, as we seek to follow you and to follow your will, Would you give us wisdom and understanding that we may live a life that pleases you? So, Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
Well, how fitting then, in a week when we are talking all about grace, that we're going to participate today in communion. And for you, I don't know what Spirit has said to you this morning, um, but if you have been sensing a call from God that, okay, there is change that needs to take place, well then, how fitting then that we are just going to open this time up for you to meet with God. This is an invitation for you to be with Jesus and to allow him to minister to you. And so I'm going to invite everyone um, to grab um, the communion elements now. We have two in the front, one in the back there. Um, We're just going to go through a little bit of the song, then we're going to come back together, and we're going to take together. Um, But as you just come forward, as you take this, uh, most likely as we've been talking, that there's something that Jesus has stirred up in you. Uh, Maybe there's just lack of, of, of trust and faith in God's grace. Well, again, here's your Savior. Um, here's the one whose body is broken for you. Here's the one whose blood has been shed for you. And so would you be highly aware of what he has done for you and where he is now because of that? As you take this and as you return to your seat, um, would you just return to your seat and would you wait then as we take this together? Jesus was betrayed before he would go to the cross. And we've just described to, to die for us, to redeem us, to give us what we've just sung about redemption and salvation. 
where Jesus he took the bread and he gave thanks for it. And he gave it to them after he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And we see elsewhere that it's made clear to us that his body was broken, taking the punishment for our sins. That whatever wickedness we had was taken on by him. It was punished. He was punished on our behalf. So any wickedness that we live in, we're sensing God calling us to change. As you eat this bread, you just remember Christ's body took that punishment for you. So let's take and eat together. same meal. Jesus took the cup, the Passover wine, as they celebrated the Passover, the day in which God's wrath was being poured out on Egypt, the angel of death made its way through the city, causing death and havoc, and the people of Israel were called to paint blood over their doorposts, and anyone who had blood over the doorposts of their house was spared. It was on that same night that Jesus took the wine that represented that says this cup this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you he said anytime you drink this remember me that you have my blood painted on the doorpost of your heart that as God's wrath is poured out anyone who has faith in Christ has got Jesus' blood painted on the doorpost of their life God's wrath passes over, that we are free for given redemption and salvation. And Jesus said, every time you do this, remember my blood was poured out for you. So would you remember that as we drink together? So Jesus, as we recreate Passover meal as many years ago. Um, we just recognize um, the grace that you've poured out on us and we thank you. We just have a posture of joy and thanksgiving, um, knowing what we do rightly deserve. But for all of us who are in you, who believe in you, that you have given us salvation, redemption, that you freely offered us what we could have never done ourselves. And so we just turn to you with praise and thanksgiving. Would you remind each and every one of us how you took on our punishment for sin, that your blood poured out has washed us clean and made us new, and that we are free to be people who live in light of your grace. That's a beautiful thing. So now, God, we just turn to you in praise, just praising you for what you've done. We just thank you. We thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, would you please stand as we continue on in worship? You worked your heart to seek out the lust. You knew the great acceptable cost. But Jesus, your face was the same. And I worked my fingers down to the bone. But nothing I did could ever atone. But Jesus, you paid my debt. 
grace has appeared to offer salvation to all people, and he teaches us to say no to ungodly, worldly passions. He teaches us to say yes to him. And so as you go then, in the words of Ephesians chapter 3, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all of God's people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. And he goes on to say, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. So to him be the glory in the church in Jesus Christ throughout all generations. So grace and peace, Common Ground Church. Thank you for being here. Have a wonderful week.